Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Ari Meisel. Ari is the best-selling author of The Art of Less Doing and The Replaceable Founder. He is a self-described overwhelmologist whose insights into personal and professional productivity have earned him the title The Guru's Guru. He can be heard on the award-winning Less Doing podcast and on international stages speaking to thought leaders and influencers throughout the world. We had a great wide-ranging conversation. It was a, a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Ari Meisel. Ari, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, we well, sh- Welcome to my garden. Uh, yeah, this is, 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 so this is audio only, but I'm in this wonderful place. This is like... This is what part of Brooklyn would be? Dumbo. Dumbo. Okay. Which I have to explain for people who are not from New York. It stands for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. Okay. It's, <laughs> there are no elephants uh, no. at all close no. by to us. And this is just, this this little garden is like, I, I mean, I would live in a cardboard box attached to this garden. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's really lucky. It's like a little oasis in the middle of the city for us. So you and I share a couple uh, things or fans of a couple, th- a couple people. Tim Ferriss and Sean T. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> I was That's funny. And one of your books, it's interesting. In the art of less doing, you talk about how a lot of your own sort of restructuring of life and thinking about time priorities because was through celiac disease. Uh, Crohn's disease. Or Crohn's disease, rather. Sorry, Crohn's disease. And through the Crohn's diagnosis and figuring how to deal with that, you really did a bunch of stuff with your diet with your exercise regime and you switch from weights to insanity, which if people don't know what insanity is, it's insane, right? It's yes, it is quite insane. It's especially insane when like you have no energy to do anything at all. Uh, it's, I think it took me three weeks to get through an entire workout. Actually, it's a, it's a DVD at home workout. It's, it's, it's killer. Yeah. Sean T is like, it got this amazing charisma, like, come on, y'all, come on. It's just, yeah. it's uh, unbelievable. So that, how, how did, what were you doing at the time? I remember I reading when you wrote your first book, you were in green, you were writing about green, uh, constructions. Yeah. Green building materials. Green building construction. materials. We're talking about like sustainable environmental, like, yeah. not just green. Like, Hey, yeah. it doesn't matter what it's made of as long as it's green. Yeah. Yeah. So you, and, and is this what you were doing when you had the diagnosis? I mean, how, how, what was life like at that point? No, actually it wasn't. Uh, so I was working in construction in upstate New York and the project I was doing wasn't explicitly about historic preservation, but it was a historic preservation project, which is also sustainable and green. And the green building movement was really just sort of starting to get going at that point. This is about 16 years ago now. Uh, so I learned about it. My architect at the time was studying to become a lead accredited professional. So I learned about it and then I became one myself and I started really getting into the different materials because there's some incredible technology and sustainable materials. And so my first book was called Lead Materials. It was uh, sort of a catalog of 180 or so really cool green building materials, including one that I invented. What was that? It's called papier tile. It was a way of encasing shredded magazine print, which at the time was very hard to recycle because it's it's glossy and colored. 
uh, and uh, encasing it in a eco-friendly resin that could be used for tiles or uh, tabletops or all sorts of things. So there's a there's a place here in New York called the Material Connection, which is a library of really cool materials, and they have samples of every material instead of books. And my material is there. This was also the point in your life, right? When you wrote your first book where you realized the value of the virtual assistant because didn't your publisher or something call you and, and like, you need the contact yeah. info for every company in the, in the book and make sure it's updated. <laughs> yeah. So that was the first time I ever used a virtual assistant. It, it was kind of a, it was really interesting because I feel like in a lot of ways that sort of set me on the path that I'm on now. But yeah, so I, there were 180 companies in the book and I had been working on it. And since it was a traditional publisher, it was an architectural publisher too. It was like a two and a half year process. And right before we're going to go to final draft, they said, yeah, you need to update the content information for all 180 companies. There's no way I'm going to do that. I, I tried to do like five of them. I was like, I can't do this. And so I started looking for some support for that. And I found a virtual assistant company, which was called Ask Sunday, based in India. And that was my first uh, virtual assistant experience. I ended up working with a woman there named Christina for uh, a year and a half. No. Here, here's my question. You, you, when you get the Crohn's diagnosis, you strike me as a pretty high energy guy, a guy that values his time and someone that likes to be on the move, do things. So was that, how did the, how did the diagnosis come? Was it like emotionally, was it pretty tough? Because it's like, my guess is this is, I mean, it's awful for anybody, but especially if you're someone that values vitality and be, and, and, and achieving and doing, how was that emotionally? So to be really, really fair or really honest, I don't think that at the time that I was diagnosed, I was somebody who was really full of vitality and like loving life. I, I think I was in actually something of a self-destruct mode in some ways because the way I was living and working was really not good. Uh, I was working on this construction project that I was running in upstate New York. I was being fairly reckless physically. I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. I was drinking every day. I was eating fast food a couple of times a day. And wow, you were, you were just like uh, better to burn out than fade away. Yeah. Yeah. It was like Hunter Thompson style, you know, and I, I, I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure what led to that. I, I could guess at a couple of things, but it was also, it was almost like I had my college experience after college in a way. And it, so I, I, it was not a good place. I was pretty manic, I would say actually at the time. And, uh, when I got diagnosed, I was 23 I was in $3 million of debt at that point from this project. And I, I got the diagnosis by voicemail. Wow. That's not great bedside manner. No. I, <laughs> you know, and also at the time, and even now, like if you Google pretty much any disease. What was the voicemail? Hi. Uh, all right. Let's like, tell you, you have Crohn's disease. Bye. <laughs> uh, no, it's, you have Crohn's disease. Uh, here's the 16 pills you're going to have to start taking every day. Wow. Uh, call me with questions. Wow. Yeah. My um, guess is you're not recommending that. No, I switched. No, I went for people. <laughs> I went for a second opinion very, very quickly because, again, at the time, you Google like anything, and basically it says you're going to die, right? So, um, or something else that's pretty horrible. So, they, uh, it's not even now. It's not the most well understood illness, and at the time, it certainly was not particularly well understood. It just basically had statistics about how likely you are to have surgery, and it's a lifelong thing, and it's incurable. It. I kept seeing the word incurable come up everywhere, you know. And so does this become your identity? When you see incurable, this is like, hi, I'm Ari. I have Crohn's disease. This has been my third year. I mean, you think this is just going to be your whole life? Well, it's it's also, yes. And it's it takes a little time to get there because it's the only time in my life so far that I've experienced those like four stages or five stages of of uh, of grief, you know, with the uh, denial and the acceptance. Bargaining. And bargaining, Yeah. 
because at first I was like, no, it can't be me. There's no way. Like, that's not, you know, I'm not, I don't have an incurable illness. And eventually you start to try to figure it out. I don't think I ever got past the bargaining phase though, because I did overcome it. $3 million in debt, like, and Crohn's disease. I mean, like, how were you thinking, like, why go on at this point? Like, is this? I can tell you, um, because a month before I got diagnosed, I met my wife. Oh, wow. So I had a good reason to want to keep living. So we uh, actually went to the same primary school together. She's two years younger than me, but we were reconnected by a mutual friend. Uh, I was I was visiting my parents basically uh, from the project I, because it was up in upstate New York. So I was visiting for this concert that they were having at their apartment, and my uh, the the pianist is a friend of my wife's and brought her, and we reconnected and we went out that night, and that was that. Wow! And ever since, it's the rest is history. Yeah. So you through like radically kind of reorganizing your life and changing your diet, changing exercise, getting going from kind of reckless to responsible, you eventually wind up being somebody that is a consultant in productivity, right? I mean, you're somebody that helps people uh, get their lives under control or, or manageable and thriving. So, I mean, what at what point are you like, hey, look, I, I should be doing, I should be that guy that people call. Like, I, I, I mean, I love green building materials, but I mean, I could be doing other things. Yeah. You know, I don't think there was ever that sort of light bulb where I was like, Hey, I can help other people. It, it was just something that I was really passionate about. I, the, the, a lot of bad things happened because of the illness, but the, the short version that's relevant to this is that I went from working 18 hour days to working hour days because I just didn't have the energy. So, and I also hadn't sold any of these units at that point. That's why I was in the debt. So I, I had to continue to operate. And so that extreme restriction of time was a huge benefit for me in a lot of ways. And I just started writing about productivity, about hacks and things that I was interested in. Uh, and uh, it, incidentally, it was a friend of mine named Jameson, uh, Jameson Detweiler, who is, has a number of startups now, but he is the one who came up with the name Less Doing. We were like just friends. We're like, let's write a blog about productivity. And he's like, let's call it Less Doing. I was like, okay. Uh, and then after like three or four blogs, he went off and started another company and I kept going with it. But I was just writing about stuff where the shift really happened was there was a platform that launched called Skillshare, which you may have heard of. But so Skillshare is basically like anybody can teach anything to anyone and they would facilitate that. So essentially it was a plat- it, was, it was almost like Eventbrite. Like you could just say, I want to teach this thing at this time. You can buy tickets through this website. And we'll go from there. Uh, so I was really into productivity. I was like, I'll just teach a class about productivity hacks. So I got eight people the first time for five bucks each. And I rented a space. Actually, I didn't rent it. I got a free space with a projector. And all I did literally in that class was go through like 20 different websites of cool productivity tools. And this is how I use this. And this is how I use this. And people liked it. Um, so I did it again. And at the same time, I'm starting to develop my own content. And every time I develop a new piece of content, I would test it with my next class until I had enough to form a real book and a real methodology with nine fundamentals. And at that point, I was teaching... Uh, to groups of 40 people who were paying 50 bucks each every other week, sold out every time. I was one of Skillshare's top classes actually in New York. And <laughs> it's just so funny how things work out. I was getting really good at outsourcing in general. And one thing where I was struggling with was outsourcing writing. So what I tried doing was having someone take a bunch of my blog posts and write a book. It was terrible. Tried doing some audio recordings, blog posts. It was terrible. So I took a shot. terrible because you think people couldn't translate 
the what you were doing, like the the post or the audio content, into something that you found the prose was like. I think I'd want to read this. Yeah, and it just wasn't cohesive. You know, like it didn't make sense. But in some ways, I guess it didn't even make sense to me at the time. Like I really, I was winging it a lot. So I taught this class several times and got really really good feedback. And so I had uh, I just set up a a camcorder basically and filmed one of my classes, which was two hours. I took that video. And I gave it to a ghostwriter that I found on Upwork. And for $470, she wrote the first book, Less Doing More Living. Wow, really? No, not that one. But, this right, is the I'm second looking, one. Yeah. I'm looking at you. This is like, yeah, okay. So that's that's the updated version. And uh, So did you like kind of revise it? Like the updated version, was, was you sort of getting the feel for the writing? Or? The updated version was a lot more of my right. writing and input and, and, uh, and then refinement. So it's... That first nine fundamentals. By the way, why less doing as opposed to doing less? Is it intentional? Is less that... doing, more living. Right. Okay. I was thinking, or, or less doing, more being, more. Li- yeah, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so I had this book written, and it was an ebook, and I think I was selling it for, or like giving. I can't even remember. I think I was selling it for like five bucks to people. Uh, and I went to an event to speak, and somebody introduced me to their publisher, their their editor actually at that time, and. We started talking about my book, and I was like, yeah, I already have a manuscript written. It's like, wow, that's so far ahead of the game. And so they picked it up, and that was Penguin in a random house, so biggest biggest publisher in the world, picked up my book, which was an interesting version of legitimizing what I was doing. And then the way that started to turn into coaching was... How, the- how big of a payoff is that psychologically legitimizing? Because you were... I mean, because it, it seems like you're pretty good at all this stuff. I mean, a lot of basically what you had in place... The, the foundational building blocks are there. I mean, but how much is the psychological oomph, the boost from like, okay, wow, I'm not self-published. I'm not so like a, a legitimate publisher thinks I can, this is a value. Yeah. Except in my case, that's where imposter syndrome like went through the roof. You know, it's like I've, you know, a couple hundred people have seen my stuff at this point and like it, but now several thousand people are going to see it and what's going to happen. <laughs> it was really, it was a weird uh, experience. And going through the editing of it, and, that, and the editor, everyone really liked it. But for some reason, like I, I could believe it. Like it, it never felt real to me at the time. Right. Were you someone like in as a kid that people didn't listen to? I mean, were you an outgoing kid? Were you? Were you? I mean, what, what surprised you most that that people wouldn't be receptive? I mean, other. I mean, everybody has can have imposter syndrome. But I mean, was there stuff from childhood or just from your own development that was like? I'm not used to being the person that people would listen to their ideas or that's the creative or something. Um, I think it's. It's that I was, you know, 23 or 24 years old and I, I made this stuff up. You know, I made it all up uh, based on things that I was seeing. I didn't have data. I didn't have, you know, years of being a COO or a CEO at companies. And it was just things that I saw. In a lot of ways, I, I recognize that the beginner's mindset is probably one of the most valuable things that anybody can have because you don't, you can't, you don't have to unknow things, you know. Uh, but that was the thing. It was like some, some Fortune 500 CEO is going to call BS you know, on what I'm writing. And fortunately, it never ended up happening because I've now proven this stuff, you know, thousands of times over. Uh, but the way the coaching started from that was the same sort of randomness. I, I, so I have the book deal at that point and I'm teaching this class still. And after one class, this guy comes up to me and he's like, gosh, he's like, that was such a great class. He's like, do you do private coaching? And I was like, yeah, I do. Just like that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, absolutely. And this is how much it costs. And this is when we'll meet. And, you know, when do you want to start? And he signed up with me. I'd never done coaching before. Uh, and I've, <laughs> I should probably talk to him at some point. Uh, but so then after every class at that point, I'd be like, and by the way, I offer private coaching. And so I ended up getting to do thousands of hours of coaching that way. And 
learning a lot of pitfalls along the way and making mistakes and figuring out what I wanted to coach people on. And uh, it's like the 10,000 hour rule, which is, you know, disproven many times over. But I mean, I really did massively expose myself to different people with different problems. And that's how I started coaching. What if you had said, no, I don't like that. That's, I mean, it seems like (laughs) just the risk of saying, yeah, I do. When really you're thinking inside, you're thinking I could, I mean, it's not off the table. I mean, (laughs) taking those risks. I mean, I wonder how often people should be taking the calculated risks like that or spontaneous risks. Cause I mean, what's the worst thing that could have happened? You know, it could have gone terribly and you didn't do it, you know, you or something like that. Yeah. I mean, th- the thing is, the truth is I probably should have been like, well, I don't, but I'm, I'm happy to discuss it, you know? <laughs> uh, but I was just like, yeah, I do totally. And this is what it costs. And this is, you know, I had this whole like plan in my head that came out of me in like one second and then I had to deliver on it. Uh, yeah, I do think about that quite a bit, actually. Like, what if I had said no? What if I hadn't made some of the mistakes I'd made? A lot. One of the the hard lessons that I learned through the process was about confidentiality. I mean, I understand the concept, but there were times where things slipped, and you really, really have to be careful about that. So, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, you can get sued. You know, but that's pretty bad. <laughs> um, or in the case of, I know this sounds weird. This might sound weird to some people. In the, I'm saying in the case of productivity, but. Ideal in overwhelm and stress. You know, so somebody could kill themselves. I mean, it's, it can go. It could go very, very badly. The things that I end up dealing with. Yeah, could, you say it's true. In in the art of less doing. In the end, you talk about how most of the people you deal with are just looking to get more manageable. You know, the very small percentage or the one percent. Like, I want to be the maximum. You know, I I, I just took my I just took my uh, my jolt super energy drink and listen to four Tim Perth's podcast. I'm ready to go. Like that's not the majority. The majority of people are just, they're probably, especially in a place like metropolitan New York city that are business owners or high functioning professionals with, with kid, with families. And they're just trying to like, it, it just, everything's coming at them all at once. Right. And it feels like there's no margins. Yeah. It's the people who are really underwater and they're on their tippy toes, you know, trying to just get one breath a lot of times because you just don't know which way is up at that point. It's that, the extreme state of overwhelm that I get exposed to quite often and where I've been myself is when you get to this point where you feel like no matter what you do, you're going to disappoint someone, whether it's going to be your clients or your colleagues or your family or yourself. And that is a really hard place to be. I heard uh, David Allen say recently in an interview that one of the things he learned early on is the pain of breaking an agreement with yourself if you don't get something done. or if you, And so how to sort of mitigate that and how to because you can either, you know, renegotiate it, right? Or, or do it, not do it or renegotiate it. And, and, but it's, it's so interesting, right? Like oftentimes people don't see the options in front of them because people are just overwhelmed, right? And sometimes you just go into a hole. Well, you know, it's, it's the people who, when you ask them, how, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, I'm just so busy, so busy. Uh, you know, I'm just putting out fires left and right. You try to, I, I just, I would challenge people. If you hear somebody say that to you and you, they're not running away from you at the time, Say to them, well, what are you spending all your time on? And I promise you that most of them will not be able to give you a real answer. This is uh, in your book, The Art of Less Doing, is broken down to three stages, optimize, automate, and outsource. And that, I mean, that's the beginning. You say tracking your time, right? Just like, uh, I actually interviewed a woman who wrote a whole, did track her time for like a, a, a year or two, like in, every single second. I mean, it, and wrote a whole book about it. It's fascinating. But, but that's, I mean... I, you, you talk about this in a chapter called Know Thyself. I mean, is the hardest thing for people this like looking in the mirror saying, oh my gosh, I, I, my time is a mess. I mean, how I wonder how, 
how is that the hardest first step in sort of what the way you think is the road to less doing? Like, cause it, it takes, it seems like it takes a lot of attentiveness, some self awareness and, and some grace for yourself to be like, Hey, okay, I'm a mess. And how do I tidy it? Well, yeah, it is, but it's, it's not even to that point yet for most people because they are so busy, quote unquote busy that they can't even have the, the wherewithal to know that they should have the self-awareness to know that there's something wrong. Honestly, because the other thing is that this being busy is like a badge of honor still for a lot of people. And so we're supposed to be busy. So why would I question it? You know, it's supposed to be this hard. I'm supposed to be missing my kid's soccer game and, you know, not having date night with my wife. Those kind of like, I'm supposed to be that way because that's how I'm going to be successful. So they don't even think to look differently. But if you don't track your time in some way or another, then there's no way that you'll ever improve and you'll just keep shoveling until you die. Yeah, because uh, it, it's interesting when you, the time that we can't account for, right? I mean, that it's, I, I mean, human memory is messy anyway, right? I mean, it's just, a, it's, it's a very fallible, f- finite kind of thing. But, but the fact like that we can just, that stuff just fades into the background and, and, and it's just easy to not have no idea that you really just wasted your time either in things that you just were unimportant and not urgent or maybe the urgent unimportant. You were just sitting there, uh, bound up in, in circles on things that could have been automated somehow or nixed away or things like that. Yeah. And believe it or not, the, the, the so-called sort of waste of time is actually not as big a concern for me necessarily. Because, and Tim actually is the one who says this, is that productivity is producing more, efficiency is producing more with less, and effectiveness is producing the right things, right? So wasting your time, you know, like, what does that actually mean? Does that mean that you were doing something inefficiently, so you just ended up taking more time on it? Or were you truly doing the wrong thing? Uh, Which is also very hard to see the right from the wrong if you're not in this space where you can look at what you're doing. So waste of time is just the beginning of the problem. It's, it's interesting. I, I have heard this in a couple of your podcasts. You say uh, one of the most common questions you get is, I need a CRM, right? How, what's the best CRM, which is customer relation, customer relations management, like software, right? How do we, how do we figure out if our customers are happy and, and, and satisfied? And, and usually your first response is like, well, I don't even know that you need one, right? But, but everybody thinks they need one, right? Well, cause everybody knows what the solution is to their problems, but they don't know what the problem is. Honestly, think about it. Like everybody just, th- oh yeah, I have, I just have to go to the doctor for this thing, right? They're going to, I just need this particular medicine or something, or we need this tool, or I just got to hire a digital strategist and everything's going to be fine. You can't solve the problem that you haven't identified yet. Um, so if you ask somebody like that, and that, I love that when people ask me, you know, what's the best CRM? And I say, well, what do you need it for? And half the time, at least half the time, they, they don't really know. It's really just like, well, everyone in my industry has it, you know, or, uh, the one we have isn't working. <laughs> well, why not? Have we looked at why not? So try to identify a problem before you come at it with a solution, which is also why Optimize Automate exists as it does, because you can't outsource something that is inefficient and expect it to become more efficient. Outsourcing is not an efficiency filter. Uh, it's uh, an empowerment filter in some cases, and people can do things with more skill than you can, certainly. But that doesn't mean that if you take an ineffective problem or an inefficient problem, it's going to suddenly get 
more efficient. And further to that, last thing I want to say about that is that if you're getting a result, no matter how dirty it is, no matter how inefficient, no matter how ugly the process looks, as long as you're getting that result, great. So the CRM is a really good example. Are you managing customer relationships well now? You know, a customer relationship, a CRM is not going to come up with a gifting campaign for your high level clients, right? It's not going to create a follow up uh, standard for how you deal with customer service issues. It's just going to allow you to do those things a little bit easier. So if you think that you're going to get a tool or an automation or a person and just put it into place and plug and play, and you're trying to solve for something that you haven't solved yourself yet, not going to work. Yeah. So, I mean, how, it's interesting because it sounds like a lot of people come to you with how questions, right? And, and it sounds like at least half of what you're doing with folks, and I can see this just from you, is, is also why questions, right? Like, like the how questions are useless without the whys, right? And so, I mean, is it challenging to get people to shift gears? Like, whoa, 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 slow down. Like, is there kind of, are they kind of like, well, I'm paying you to teach me how to use the hot yeah. tool apps and, and hacks I hear on these websites and on these podcasts? Like, I mean, is that, is that hard to do like early on? It's a constant struggle, honestly, a lot of times. And we, we actually have done very intentional efforts towards making me not the tool guy. We don't want that. Like you have that. a great, you have a great phrase. You say, I'm a tool agnostic. I love that yes. phrase. I, when I, when I, I love, because I always, I'm the same, like it, the, the tool is, 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 is irrelevant. means to an end, right? It's not the end in itself. And when it becomes an end, like if, if, if you're addicted to the hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? That's right. Uh, and you know, like, so for a good example of that is Trello is my favorite project management tool. It's an excellent piece of software, but truth be told, you can do a lot of what Trello does with post-it notes on a whiteboard. Um, but you have to understand how to do that first. It's just like a wax on, wax off, you know, like you have to start with some sort of base before you start adding in all sorts of things like nunchucks. So, yeah, um, that why is extremely important. And the why is important for your team, too, because what ends up happening is there's a big difference between management and leadership, right? And management is not what we want because that's you pushing the business forward with your hands and knees and digging in and being there. Whereas if you're a leader, you can push your business forward with your ideas. Yeah, this is the idea, right? The replaceable founder, right? Like you can make yourself expendable in the management end of it, right? So that the thing can run in a sense of whatever can be automated and go without you so that you can actually lead lead the thing as opposed to just kind of keep it going. Not just lead it, but leave it. Yeah. You know, if you could set up a business in a way that you could leave it and it could continue to thrive, what more could you ask for in a business? Yeah. Yeah. Because you can sit on a beach and earn clay <laughs> or you can, or, or you can just come up with new ideas and be innovative yeah. and do what, you know, really thrives or was, is what most entrepreneurs really thrive on. So I want to check something here. It's because I want to kind of want my reward, but I'll see if I get it. There you go. So there's my inbox. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Totally so, clean. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's funny. One of our mutual friend, uh, that introduced, uh, you know, that told me that maybe you'd be a good guest. Um, she's astonished that I like about inbox here, but I found it one of the most, uh, therapeutic and efficient things. And also I found once you get to inbox zero, you can, it, it's the transferable skill. Cause really it's just the deal with what is it delete, um, Delete it, deal with it, or defer it. Yeah, yeah it's a decision so, matrix. And so it's like the decision matrix thing. I think it's such a concrete thing that everybody deals with that if you get the decision, decision matrix down with email, all of a sudden you just look around and see, okay, I can, I can do it with, with these books that are sent to me for, for the podcast, or I can do it with this or these tasks. And, and it just becomes this really liberating thing, right? Yeah. Well, so that, that's a really interesting point. Actually, that goes back to the waste of time. 
when you get your inbox under control, you are controlling something. And control, in my opinion, is the antidote to stress. That waste of time issue is being out of control, right? So if you know what your time is, then you can control your time rather than the opposite. Is that because like when you're, when you're, it's the difference between an object and a subject. Like, I mean, most of us don't feel like, feel like an object. Like we're in a DMV line. We have no subjectivity, no agency, right? Like, right. like when, when things are out of control, you feel like an object, not a subject. Like not that you're, as if you had the levers of power. Yeah. And the thing is, is that as with most things, if you don't do it, someone will do it for you. If you don't schedule your time, someone will schedule it for you. If you don't control your inbox, the world will control your inbox. So if you're somebody with a lot of... Okay, well, let's just stay on the inbox thing for, for a second. Uh, people, it, 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 somebody comes to you with 3,000 emails, right? No problem. Okay, well, so what do you say to do? Like, this, okay, I'm an entrepreneur. I come to you, all right, coach, ready. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I've got my shoulder pads on. I got 3,800 emails. And that's probably a modest amount, like... Yeah, I mean, I've seen 900,000 plus in an inbox before. What did you do? 900,000 plus? Same thing. So the first thing that people need to do is archive everything that's over two weeks old. And I would even push that to a week at this point. Because email is a fast-paced tool, right? So if something's been sitting in your inbox for a week, it's probably not relevant anymore. So archive all that stuff. Uh, That's not deleting it, just archiving it. So that gets out of the inbox. Now, even the busiest, busiest person is not going to have more than 1,000 emails at that point, and usually much, much less. And then uh, do the uh, unsubscribe filter, which you're familiar with. Right. I can just say everybody right now, if somebody's listening overwhelmed, right, they could just sit right now and hit archive everything other than boom. And they're already there. They could do that while they're listening to this podcast. They could be doing this. Yeah. And so if you're actually, it's really easy. If you're in Gmail, you can just type in the search bar older underscore than uh, colon 14D, which is 14 days. uh, And then you'll get everything that's older than two weeks and archive it. That's the first one. And then, so then you have a filter that says any email that has the word unsubscribe in it will skip the inbox and go into a folder, which we'll call optional because it really is truly optional. We need to treat it that way. And that tends to take care of about six. That's because if it has an unsubscribe, it's from a mass email. It wasn't sent to you. It wasn't sent to you. It was sent to a a million other people. Mm -hmm. And there may be something there that you really like to read, you really want to see, but you're not deleting it. It's just going to go in this other folder. Uh, That takes care of about 60% of most people's emails that we see. And then you do the three Ds on what's left. And if that's at that point, I'd be surprised for most people if that's anything more than 50 emails or 100, maybe you should be able to make those decisions very quickly. In 10, 20 minutes, you'll be out of there. That's, that's amazing. Now, I'm, I wonder how you transfer that. Like, what are, uh, like, with that kind of the decide, you know, delete, de- defer the kind of thing. I mean, I, how do you, what are some other ways like you can use that? Just anybody can use that every day. Like, wow. You, yeah, I mean, so I really teach that as a, I, we call it the three decisions. And generally speaking, 99% of the decisions that come your way in a given day, your first pass is it, pass at it, you should be able to make one of those three decisions. Now, clearly, there's going to be times where someone's like, well, do you want the red tie or the green tie? You know, or do you, do you want to uh, open our next branch in Southeast Asia or in Africa? Like those are more detailed decisions. But with that, the first time you got that, you would defer to a time that you really can dig into that and make an actual appropriate decision. So for the majority of decisions that would distract you throughout the day and interrupt you, three decisions is all you need. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sally Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsmith, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You say something interesting in in the art of less doing. You say that you don't believe in priorities, which is, I feel like, a pretty bold statement. I mean, it, I, I feel like if people didn't understand the context of this, they would say, I'm jumping off the train. If you don't believe, I'm, I'm, I'm all about I'm getting my priorities in art. But you say that, you know, that's explain why you don't believe in priority. Well, first of all, it's a misnomer because the word priority was a singular word for the first 400 years of its documented usage. And then somehow in the Industrial Revolution, we suddenly got plural priorities, even though priority in itself means the one thing, right? It's the most important one thing. But now you have organizations with their 15 top priorities for the, it's confusing for one. And the other thing is that uh, there's that, you know, that expression, um, uh, man plans, God laughs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> rather than prioritizing, what if we were to look at it this way? Of the 50 things that I have to do today or tomorrow or this week or this quarter, whatever it might be, what single thing am I slowing down the most? Where am I holding up the train the most? Do that one first. Get that out of the way. Let somebody else do their thing. It's, this is not saying eat the frog. You know, there's not, it's not what that is. It's literally like people are waiting for me to approve this document. There's six blog posts that are waiting for my approval. Um, I have to make a decision on which country we're going to go into next. You know, you can go sit on the mountain and make these and procrastinate on these decisions as much as you want. But ultimately, every minute that you don't make a decision, somebody in your organization is getting held up by 20 or 30 minutes for each minute. And that's not, I'm not just making that up. Like there's actual science around this. So there's this multiple that comes from that. And the entrepreneur doesn't make a decision. And two weeks later, everybody's missed a deadline and nobody knows why because this whole butterfly effect. So stop thinking that you have the control to prioritize. Just do the things that you have to do and do them in a timely manner so that they don't hold other people up from doing what they need to do. Everything is about constant movement. This is not about being hasty or speeding things up necessarily, but consistency. You say also in The Art of Less Doing, you talk about biological evolution versus technological evolution. And we're, I mean, I guess the only species I think that 
does technology really? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, other, I mean, beavers make dams, but it's not exactly technology. It's something. Yeah, I guess monkeys may use tools, but, right? Yeah. So, but I mean, we and, and we are able to develop technology, improve it at exponential rates, and our, we don't evolve exponentially. So, like you say that you know, there's no such thing as multitasking. Right. Brains are, I, this is one thing that I, I read this to my wife. She's like, exactly. Like, why you get more tired running on the treadmill? Because you have more things. More information. You, yeah. You, you have to, oh, what hill, what speed, whatever outside you're kind of zoning out and you don't think about it. And you're, you're bringing it. So like, I mean, how much time do you spend with clients, like teaching them how to change their mindset around tools because they don't, they don't understand the difference between the biology and the technology. Yeah. So this is the hardest, hardest thing I think that we struggle with sometimes is that every coaching program out there, you know, talks about the results that they get people like, Oh, we doubled their income and our uh, double profitability or, you know, they had their first six figure day. Like a lot of it's around money and we get the same kind of results, but it's for us, what we're doing is saving time. Ultimately, like we are, we are saving people's time so they can do with it what they want. Now, uh, sorry, restate the question. Oh, yeah, I'm saying the, the biology versus technology. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah. So um, we have evolved, as I say in the book, you know, we haven't evolved as quickly as we have biologically as we have technologically. So the first thing is that to think that we can keep up with all this stuff is crazy. We're, we're designing things that are far surpassing our abilities to do them. And the future in terms of technology is very, very bright, in my opinion. I think it's, it's pretty amazing. But we have to accept that we can't, it's, it's not reasonable for us to like stay on top of every single email that comes up. You have to accept that. Uh, it's a unique opportunity where we have thousands of things coming out at a given day. You don't have that in other places in your life. Um, and then the way that we interact with those technologies is equally important because technology can certainly replace a lot of the things that a person does. But if they see it as a way of replacing themselves up rather than out, then it's a really good thing. Say, 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 say more about up as, as opposed to out. My one, one of my college professors had this great saying. He used to say, never be irreplaceable. Irreplaceable. Because if you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. And that's what it is, is that we get ourselves stuck in the positions that we're in because we are opaque about the things we're doing. We hold on to them because that's what makes us valuable. That's what's going to make us indispensable to the organization. But there's a big difference between indispensable and irreplaceable. Indispensable is great. Irreplaceable is the death knell. Yeah, that, that's that's a fascinating. So you're kind of like you talk about in um, you talk about in the replaceable founder uh, this book being the opposite of the Peter principle. Yeah, that, that yes. book that was like a satire, like the the, the, the people are promoted to their the point of obsolescence, incompetency, right? Yeah, or they're, or they're yeah, and you're saying you need a different framework for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that, and, and also the Peter principle, you know, looks at sort of a traditional structured management system where people are becoming, you know, um, juniors and then managers and directors, that kind of thing. So yeah, the, the idea there was that people would get promoted based, promoted to a higher level position based on performance in their current position, which makes no sense. Right? So at some point they get sort of promoted out of what they're actually capable of doing. But in this case, what we're end up doing is we're elevating an entire organization because if you have, just think about a pyramid. Everybody visualize a pyramid in your head for a second, right? And if you have one person at the top, two below them, and then three below that, let's just say, right? Those three at the bottom have an interesting opportunity. They can stay at the bottom or they can stick in, you know, shunts and start to raise themselves up so that the bottom is no longer them. There's a new bottom below, right? If, as it were, I don't know if that visualizes well enough for people, but the, the, 
the point is there that when those three people at the bottom figure out how to automate the stuff they're doing and optimize it and outsource what they're, what they're doing, that's incredible. Why would we want those people to leave? We would want them to become the next level, right? Which elevates everybody. And that's what we want for everybody in the organization. We want everybody to be as replaceable as possible. I'm curious, we're at a time politically where people are, I mean, this is like, people say this is the most tribal polarized time since like the civil war. And so much of what people think about is like uh, economics, you know, like uh, income inequality and these sorts of things. I mean, do you think that uh, these kind of productivity tools, I I mean, how much sort of uh, leisure space do you have to have? Do you think anybody like uh, somebody that is at the bottom rung of the socioeconomic ladder, uh, not, of course there's challenges and structural things, but I mean, do you think like this is, does this kind of productivity stuff, do you have to be upper middle class or above? I mean, do you think, or do you think it's, it'll work anywhere? So as I said, right, this is not about the tools. If it was about the tools, then I would tell you, yes, you have to be able to afford it. You have to be able to use it somewhere. This is about mindset. And uh, I can give you a really sort of specific concrete example for how this affects anybody in any organization at any level, whether they're, you know, a junior level accountant at a big accounting firm or the person taking your order at a fast food restaurant. There are sort of four levels of mindset in general when you're looking at the way that people operate. And there's, there's all sorts of different names for them, but I'll just give you an illustration. So let's, let's take a speed bump. Okay. A physical speed bump. And let's pretend that the speed bump is a person. So at the bottom level, at level one, let's say, you, you ask that speed bump, what do you do? And the speed bump says, I'm a speed bump. Slow cars down. Okay, fine. If that person is at the sort of elevated mindset, level two, we'll, we'll call it, you say, what do you do? He says, well, I'm, a, I'm a, a traffic control device. I make traffic run more effectively and efficiently. Great. Okay, that's good. Now we get to level three. What do you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a safety device. I help make people safer. Well, that's great. That's a really good thing to think about yourself. And if you get to level four, which is the highest level, and you ask that person what they, you ask the speed bump, what do you do? And he says, well, there's a school about 50 feet down the road. So uh, I save children's lives, right? Now, it's the same person talking about what they do in a very, very different way. And this is an organizational issue. So yes, it's true that you can just have a person show up to work one day and be like, I'm this amazingly elevated person. It has to come from the top down, but it affects everybody. I had a, a workshop recently and this guy was there and he's a, as a pool maintenance company. And everyone was introducing them saying what they do. And he says, I deliver happiness. And the thing is, is if you have somebody who's delivering happiness as opposed to maintaining pools, you're going to have employees who show up on time. They don't call in sick and they feel good about what they do and they feel empowered. The other way around, you get poor performance and an organization that eventually is going to fall apart. You basically just use the speed bump to... uh summarize Aristotle's views of causality. <laughs> like the final cause, the official cause. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, it's all uh, about relating to the material. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that's amazing. So, uh, you know, you, you have this great Whitehead quote, which I, I was struck by. So I was thinking about, Civilization advances by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking of them. And, and I mean, I think it seems like like that, that, that is true, right? Like we, you know, when, when you have automated traffic signs, you need a traffic cop, things like that. We can think about all sorts of refrigeration, whatever, you know, but, but that's sort of on a microcosm, what you think about too, right? Like how, like how you, the, the, the things you can automate outsource once you get to the optimal level, that's how the, the, the citizen in the civilization will progress too, right? Yeah. Well, and, you know, and, but there's a key thing in there, right? Which is the number of things that we can do without thinking about them. You ever see the TED talk about the guy who built the toaster? No. 
Okay. It's great. It's a great TED talk and I recommend it to everybody. Uh, basically a guy woke up one morning and his toaster was broken. So he thought maybe what, what would it take for me to make a toaster? And so he started, you have this in the back of the one book, right? If the toaster's broken or whatever, that, or don't you have something? I, don't know. About I the, might. The five to that the plug is broken. The what like, Oh, oh yeah, yeah. 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 That's the five wise. No, but this is, um, uh, so he, he wants to build a toaster, but he wants to really build it from scratch. So to make the metal for the toaster, he learns how to mine ore, you know, <laughs> like, and so the, the thing is, is if you think about a simple toaster, there are a thousand things that go into that, that you don't have to think about. You're welcome. You know, thank you technology. Right. So it's the number of things that we can do without having to think about them because we have limited brain power. Yeah. This is like specialization. I mean, in the hunter gatherer society, everybody basically has to know how to do everything everybody does. Right. Whereas, you know, we have specialization frees us up to, to know very little amounts about, you know, a limited, a limited kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and actually it's my, my, uh, my favorite quote of all time, which I'll have to look up really quick for you is Robert, Robert Heinlein one. Cause you talk about specialization. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. Okay. I'm going to. I get it for you real quick here. So Robert Heinlein is, uh, you know, who he was? I don't. Oh, okay. He's a great science fiction author. He wrote um, Tunnel in the Sky, which was basically Lord of the Flies. It was great. But so he says, a human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure. Program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, and die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. Wow. So do you, how many of those things can you do? Like nine out of 10 of them. Which is the one you can't? Uh, I, well, I've, I've, made it, I've made it like my mission to, to do it. Um, actually, I, get, I don't think I could write a sonnet. I don't yeah. think I can do that. Have you comforted someone dying? Yes. How, what, how did you comfort them? Oh, it was my, my uh, mother-in-law uh, died in our home, actually and uh of, of cancer and i am a emt so i was there helping to uh support the hospice care people wow do, do you remember things you said or were there things you know it's really funny uh every time that i do a podcast people ask me if there's anything off limits and i've always always said there is nothing off limits i'm completely open book but this is the first time i think i have to say that i think that's totally fair i i i'm the i i feel like i've broken new ground this yeah is, uh, this it's amazing is breaking yeah this is i I was thinking about this earlier too, because I think we are in a, I mean, especially in an area like New York city where it's kind of blue state urban area where traditional religions and religious institutions are on the decline. I wonder for how many clients you become almost something like clergy or spiritual guide because they, I'm sure many of them don't, even if they're raised in some sort of spiritual tradition, aren't active in it anymore. And, you know, maybe they have a therapist, which also, but I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure there are times when they're coming to overwhelm, thinking about ultimate questions about, you know, the whys of life and what they want in life. Do you, do you find yourself becoming becoming spiritual guide or clergy or in these sort of uh deep existential kind of things that, that, that they didn't think they were paying you for yeah i, I mean i never thought of myself as like elevated to the level of clergy but I, I i get your point and yes i mean i i have been on the receiving end of a number of rants uh from people where they just had to let something out about what was going on in their life and the thing is is that very rarely do i hear something new you know so i guess in that way it's like the confessional right uh, and that's usually very comforting is just to be able to talk to somebody about it who's seen it before and know that this is normal. Um, most of the things that we experience as entrepreneurs that seem really awful and hard are normal. And we tend to silo ourselves. So, yeah, I, I do think that I found myself in that position a number of times. And 
there have been a couple of times where it's been uncomfortable for me, but um, I've always tried to, to... The difference between a coach and a consultant, right, is that a coach ends up being a guide, whereas a consultant tells you what to do. And I don't like consulting. Is it because it, it's a less creative endeavor? I mean, it, or... No. No, it's because they never do as well with it. You can tell somebody what to do all day long, but if you don't guide them through it, their odds are that they're going to fail. And, and that's the payoff for you other than, of course remuneration but like do you is there real joy when you see someone that actually can function when, when they're yeah. empowered yes there is it's truly truly joyful for me do you ever say to somebody look you're just not learning this isn't working for you like what we should just i should cut the cord because oh yeah absolutely i've fired clients before is that like traumatic for who for them <laughs> uh no because most of the I, if i have to really think about it the times that it's happened it's because the person was so far in their own way that they they couldn't hear anything that was coming at them so they just go straight to denial and assume it's me you know that that, that couldn't serve them so what are, what are you in your life like most passionate about because i mean you have you're pretty good at i mean if people read your stuff I, and i'd recommend yeah, I'll put links to all your stuff in the show notes. I mean, I, you you seem like an impre- incredibly efficient person who has time to pursue things you want to pursue because you've you've committed to a sort of the optimization, uh, automating, outsource kind of thing. What, what what are you most passionate about? Since you have some margin and space to pursue those in your life. So as I mentioned before, I'm an EMT, and one of the things that I'm working on right now is that I would like to become a paramedic with the New York Department, the New York Fire Department. Do you need to do that? Funny. I mean, like, do you need, I mean, why are you an EMT? Cause I mean, it doesn't strike me that you need the money to side income. I mean, it's, it's not a lot of money. <laughs> I was going to say, it doesn't seem like a lot it of money. It doesn't pay particularly well. Um, why EMT work? It's the most fulfilling and exciting work I've ever done in my entire life. Um, the, why? Uh, there's just a constant variety. Um, clearly I have some need to rescue people, <laughs> uh, that, that seems to get fulfilled really well there. I, I came like this close to delivering a baby once, which was pretty awesome. But I mean, I've, I've literally, I mean, I've literally saved lives with, with some of the calls that we've had and I don't know, just something can't beat that. Is it like altruistic, altruistic adrenaline? Like you get adrenaline and it's, I, I, and it's kind of, I wouldn't be so pompous as to call myself altruistic. I mean, I really enjoy it. You know, it's really, really, really fulfilling for me. Something I know, I, I, I just want to think well, a couple things. One, I think for people that are creating content, right? I was listening to some of your podcasts and you did this great podcast in the car, taking someone's tips for email management. And, and you just basically went through 10 or 23. Yeah. 23 <laughs> things. It took 10 or 11 minutes, maybe, maybe 12 minutes or something. And you went through all of their rules and why you thought some of them were good, why you thought some of them were, and why you thought some of them were I was absurd. driving at the time. Yeah. But it's interesting. I, I was sitting there thinking about this, like for content creators, here, here was something that it didn't take a lot of work because you just saw this list, right? And you, and you spent so much time with email, you were able to just go through it, you know, in the car. And, and I, and I thought, you know, this is not just a, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to get hits on something. This actually is really valuable. I was thinking, I was going Thank through you. it and, and thinking, well, sometimes I use, okay, I do use sometimes folders, but then sometimes I don't. And I, I was going through comparing your do's and don'ts and mine. And I thought it really got me thinking creatively. Like it was a really good, and see, I mean, for content creators, is that, I mean, is how often do you do stuff like that? Like here's something I could just create, I could do something productive for people that are 
consuming my content just off something that came across my inbox or something. Yeah, I mean, so I made six videos today, actually, so far of uh, different things that we're doing for content stuff. Uh, content creation is, and content creation and coaching are my two favorite activities. Like it's, that's what I think I'm uniquely really good at. And um, a lot of the content either comes from something that I've seen or read somebody else talk about, or it's a uh, problem of my own that I'm solving. Um, so like I just made this long video this morning. Uh, I built a sales pipeline and dashboard, a CRM actually effectively in Trello with uh, a bunch of Zapier automations. I basically, I built uh, a series of 14 automations in Zapier with a total of something like 90 steps. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is about that is it took me a couple hours to build it, but it took me about a month to conceptualize it. And so I, I love that kind of thing. And uh, I've set myself up so that I can create content in a very effortless way. So if I want to write a blog post, I send an audio message of usually 30 seconds to my writer, Amy, who's on my team. And uh, a week or two later, we've got a thousand word blog post from that. And it's amazing, you know, and so like, that's how I quote unquote write blog posts. Now uh, I don't do a lot of video stuff. I do a lot of audio though. Interesting too. Like you practice what you preach. I mean, your podcasting streamline sort of automate. I mean, you record it in your house pretty simply. I was even shocked how simply, simple your tech setup is. And then you send it to Dropbox, which once it goes in a Dropbox folder, the email kicks it over to your production people. Then it's no, no production people. It just goes right to a VA now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So then the VA just figures out somebody that can do, take the audio and put it over. And then no, it's not edited now. Okay. I, they, they even have to master it or they just put it. No, into it's because they just, sometimes they have to trim a few seconds off the end of the beginning. That's okay. It. I don't, I don't even do intro outro music anymore. It just goes right up there. That's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean, again, it, it, it sort of, it gets at the sort of your, you've got people that want the content, right. And you're like, get the bells and whistles out of it. And you know, this is my, my, um, philosophy has always been this is like, I would rather have people get the information poorly than not get it at all. I want them to have the information. So there's going to be people who might not like that the sound quality isn't better or that I don't have a polished intro and outro. Uh, but they're going to get the information. As you said, those 23, you know, pieces of advice, like as long as you can hear it clearly, that's what matters. So for our listeners that are here, for our listeners who are here, they're listening and they're thinking, gosh, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a, like, you know, I, I, I don't have like this kind of high power entrepreneurial ambition kind of thing, but I do, but, but life does feel busy. Like it does feel, I mean, and they're, but they don't listen to Tim Ferriss stuff. They don't, the Tim Ferriss stuff. They don't do the, they don't do anything like that. They don't, they're not on, they don't know the, uh, the, what is the IFTT app? Or mm-hmm. the IFTT. Yeah. They don't know all that stuff. What would you say? Okay. Here's just start here. Just do this. What would you tell them to do? Just get, like give them a free, this is a, your free coaching session. Everybody with, I myself here it is. Track your time. I mean, that's going to be the first thing, honestly. And the art of less doing is really all about personal productivity anyway. And that's where we start with is uh, optimizing your time, right? The 80-20 rule is what I talk about mostly. And there's a number of different ways to do that. If you want to do it really simply, just take a piece of paper and write down every hour what you're doing. You're going to really open your eyes to something, I promise you. If you want to go a little bit more technological than that, then you could go with something like Rescue Time, which is a great app that for uh, tracking your time on the computer. And my favorite, which is a device called the Timeular. It's not particularly expensive. I think it's about 60 bucks. And it's, uh, it looks like a large dice or die. And you just write, like, on one side you can write podcasting. Another one you could write finances. The different activities you might do, eight different activities in a day. And then whenever you're doing that activity, you just flip it so that that one is facing up. And it will track your time that way. It's awesome. And because what it also does is it actually it makes it almost impossible to multitask. Because if you switch something, you have to flip the dice, right? And then you... 
You don't want to do that. Which you can't even do anyway. Multitasking is just context. Exactly. Right. So if they do that, if they would track their time, then they'd be equipped to begin the kind of process that you would do with any sort of high-powered entrepreneur. Yes, because that is the beginning of having a, a modicum of control over what's happening in your life, which is what you need. Yeah, because so, that moves you from object to subject, right? You're the captain of the SS self. That's right. All right, this has been great. Thanks for taking some time in this beautiful context of, of your garden patio here to talk with me in New York. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Ari for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Art of Less Doing, and subscribe to his podcast, Less Doing Podcast. You will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.